so I'll just uh, read them. Could you say something about dedicating the merit of our practice to the enlightenment of all beings? It seems logical to me that if we give away all of our merit, then we won't have any left for ourselves. (laughs) Don't worry. Because actually the sharing of merit is itself such a meritorious act that it just keeps building. And, um, you have said, noting is only effective if there is mindfulness with the note. And if mindfulness is present, noting is not necessary. (laughs) Doesn't this mean noting is never necessary? (laughs) That thought should have been noted. (laughs) When the mindfulness is very strong, when there's really a steady continuity of awareness, then the noting is really not necessary because the noting is is really meant as a support for the growth, for the strengthening, for the stabilizing of the mindfulness. So when the mind is wandering a lot or when there's confusion, when it feels like the mind is lost in something, then the noting is really helpful. In the moment of noting, there, uh, there is already some degree of awareness You just want to be careful of any kind of overlay on top of the note that might also be there. You know, we talked talked briefly about how one could note perhaps an emotion or a thought, but noting it in an aversive way or in a in a greedy way. And you can tell a lot by the tone of the note. So if the noting is very, uh, the tone is angry. You know, and you're noting, thinking, 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 thinking. There's some degree of mindfulness in the sense that you're aware that the thought is there, but there's that filter which is not being seen at that time. So use the tone of note to really reveal what else might be present. Some of, um, why is the Dhamma as it is? Why are there objects? How did this all get begun? Those are precisely the kinds of questions that the Buddha never answered. There's one, there's one, uh, one phrase that you find in the texts a lot with different kinds of philosophical questions or questions about the origins of the universe. Or he, he kind of lumped it all together in terms of questions which don't, don't tend to edification. And edification in this sense means those questions which don't tend or are in the direction of freeing the mind. So it's important, even as one is kind of investigating the Dhamma or really has or is using that sense of inquiry, really see what track of question is about suffering and the end of suffering 
and which really don't have to do with freeing the mind. It's said that the Buddha knew much more than he taught. He gave, he gave a very beautiful example. He, he took a handful of leaves and he asked you know, the people, the monks and the nuns and the lay people, which is greater, the leaves on the trees, on all the trees in the forest or the leaves in my hand? And he said, oh Lord, the leaves in the forest are much greater than the leaves in your hand. And he said, just so, that which I know is like all the leaves in the forest. That's what, that which I've taught. It's like this handful of leaves. But this is enough for awakening, for enlightenment. So really we can, we can sort of rest easy with the handful of leaves. It's really very simple. You know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to simplify the practice, the understanding of what the practice is to the bottom line, it was really expressed very clearly in the Diamond Sutra. It says, develop a mind which clings to naught. That's all. Develop a mind which does not cling to anything. That's the whole practice. And everything we do is just in support of that. The sitting, the walking, the noting, the mindfulness, the seeing of the three characteristics. It's all to develop a mind which does not cling to anything. So let's do it. Please say something about how one can cultivate inspiration from the vastness of the Dharma instead of feeling overwhelmed or discouraged because there is so much work to do. For me, for me the vastness of vision of the practice of what we're doing. It feels inspiring to me because it's all about really a growth or development of happiness, of freedom. That's what's vast. So why not take joy from that? You know, the past... The reason the Buddha started with the first noble truth, the truth of suffering is because that's where we find ourselves. I mean, that's what's so pragmatic about the teachings. He could have taught only from a very absolute point of view. You know, it's all empty and there's no one there and, and all of that is true from the absolute, absolute point of view. But that's not where we are for the most part. Remember, we get glimpses of it. So he started with how our experience actually is. I said, yeah, if you look at your experience, you see there's attachment, there's clinging, there's aversion. There are the different kalesas which cause suffering, which, which are contractions. And then he simply went on to point out, okay, what is the cause of all that suffering? It's attachment. There's the end of it. And so when I think of the vastness of the practice, the vastness of vision, there is a lot to do, that's true but it's all in the direction of greater openness, of greater compassion, of greater freedom. That's the path we're on. That's the direction we're going in.
it seems obvious to me that it's a joyous path, even if in a, any particular moment <laughs> it may not feel that way. You know? Because really what we are doing is purifying our minds in every moment of awareness of the kalesis. Right now, in hearing the sound. It's so easy. Thank you. <laughs> it's just sounds appearing in the open, spacious quality of mind. Can we be that way with every arising appearance? A thought, an emotion, a sensation, a sight. The problem is, of course, and as you've seen so much, that our mind is so conditioned to react to what's pleasant and what's unpleasant. You know, hold on to what's pleasant, push away what's unpleasant. So really, what we're, we're simply unwinding that conditioning of learning how to rest at ease, regardless of whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. So it's really coming back to that place of ease. Could you talk more about noting seeing? Hearing seems easier. Sounds arise. A sound arises usually, but the sight is just continuously there. When you're walking down the road, uh, do you say seeing, 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 seeing the whole way? (laughs) Not particularly. (laughs) It is true that, that... when our eyes are open, seeing is, is almost continuously there. Although, as a little side note, you know, according to Abhidhamma theory, we're not actually seeing and hearing and feeling at the same time. That it's a very quick oscillation in terms of moments of consciousness. Sometimes you can have that experience, you know, when you're walking and your eyes are open, you know, have you had moments when there's just such, you could call it a kind of absorption or such a complete attention on the sensation that for, just for a split second, it's like there's no seeing. That can happen, anyway, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of noting seeing, what I think is very useful about it is not to keep the note going continuously but rather at certain times, particularly when your mind is getting captivated through the eye door. And see if you can notice what times or what situations that happens in over and over again. As I mentioned this morning, you know, for me it happened a lot in the dining room. It's like, you know, when there's other people around or around mealtime, it's as if the attention just goes out through the eyes. It might be in taking a walk. It might be at different times for you. When you notice that the mind is being captivated by what is seen, at those times, try noting seeing and notice the difference in your experience. That's the key part of it. Notice the difference when you're not noting and your attention goes out And when you are noting, and you're simply settled back in the awareness with sight, 
as an object. And I think you'll find that in one, the mind is quite open, receptive, clear, unattached. And in the other, it's as if the mind is imprisoned, captivated is actually a good word, by what is seen. So use that noting of seeing selectively, you know, in those situations where you feel like you get pulled out, and pay attention to the difference in the quality of your mind. When one is in the outside life, how does one discriminate between the judging mind and the mind of wisdom and clarity, which grows stronger as a result of practice? And how does one prevent the rigidification of the clear mind? Is this caused by the attachment to it and a corresponding buildup of a sense of self around it? I think it's not only sort of the situation in one's life outside of retreat, but we can really pay attention on retreat to the difference between the judging mind and the mind of discriminating wisdom. And for me, the telltale sign is the feeling of contraction or constriction. Now, when there's a reactive or you call it a reactive quality in the mind, that, that's the space of, the, of what I'm calling the judging type thoughts. Now, when you're going around and you see somebody or a situation and the mind has a judgment about it, but it's a reactive sense, and you can feel the tightening, you can feel the constriction, you can feel that sense of self being created. That's very different space than seeing something and noticing, noticing with awareness, noticing, noticing with discriminating wisdom. Yeah, this is like that. Maybe this needs to be corrected. You know, it's a very different inner environment than when we're caught in our own reaction to it, reaction of aversion. So I would, I would notice the difference of what it feels like inside. Just let me say, if, if as I'm going through this, you know, things don't seem clear, you can also raise your hand. How does one prevent the rigidification of the clear mind? Uh, there can be a, there can be a kind of attachment or identification with clarity, you know, or with stillness. I mentioned that the other night in the talk, you know, all these wonderful qualities of mind, which the Buddha went on to call the corruptions of insight, of clarity, of mindfulness, of calm, of equanimity. They're basically all the factors of enlightenment. It's not that they in themselves are the problem. The problem is the liability or the, the tendency that might happen to become identified with those states. And so, you know, we do create it or we can create a sense of self in them. There's a Pali word which uh, it's nikanti. And what it means is attachment to meditative states. And this is a subtle kind of attachment. It's not like a gross attachment of sense desire. But it's just the attachment that can come when things get very clear and very still and very peaceful. 
there really has to be a very delicate mindfulness, awareness, so there's no attachment or identification to that. And in those times, you might reflect back on the one line of practice. Develop a mind which clings to naught. Nothing at all. Not even you know, meditative bliss or peace or calm. Do you see the absolute... That's, this is what is so wonderful about the Dharma. It's not settling for anything less than being totally free. It's not about getting into some nice space. Although nice spaces happen sometimes. It's like... It's just cutting through it. So it's not holding on to anything. Right. Uh, I think the the operative uh, point is to see whether or not there's an there's an identification or a solidification or a reactive quality one way or the other, as opposed to the the mind state of discriminating wisdom, which really can see differences. It's not it's not that you know when we say non-judgmental mind that we stop discriminating. So much of the Buddhist teaching is about discriminating wholesome from unwholesome. You know, and the whole Abhidhamma is, is discrimination taken to the, to the limit. That's different. That, that quality of just seeing and discriminating is different than the mind which is reacting. And as you say, it could be in a grasping way as well as an aversive way. If it's empty, if it's an empty process moving on, what is the you and the reality which Kala Rinpoche refers to in the quote you cited? If you remember that the quotation, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When we understand this, we see we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. Okay, a couple of things in this. Keep in mind that generally in the, with the use of language, unless we're talking Abhidhamma language, we use language conventionally. And so we use the words of self and I and you, and that's fine. It would be very awkward to continually speak of the five aggregates moving to lunch <laughs> or moving to other aggregates. Or, you know, so you need to be able to make the shift, you know, and to really notice or to know when, when something is being used in convent, as a conventional designation and when we're talking about more absolute truth. Okay, what is the reality? 
that that he's talking about. And emptiness, it goes on, an emptiness separate from the illusions and appearances. Is there something unborn? With which of our six faculties of perception would we recognize or realize it? This is a big question, and uh, either either Steve Armstrong or Sharon is going to give a talk on Nibbana, which will really elucidate this in greater detail. Just to say a few words about it. What is the reality free of appearances and illusions of things? On one level, and this is the level we practice on a lot, it's the experience of being with phenomena free of concepts about it. So that we're not lost in a mind-constructed world, but we're actually... And again, I'm saying we now, this is conventional. So there is the awareness of... Just the the process of changing elements, the elements of mind, the elements of body, and to notice the difference when the mind creates a story about the experience and when we are lost in the story. And what is so amazing, and I know you've seen this now for a month or so, what an amazing amount of time we spend in the story. And sometimes they're they're very big dramas and sometimes they're just really subtle little thought forms, you know, that we hardly know are there. And so there's a continual coming back really to bare attention, very bare attention, completely bare attention, where there's just phenomena just the elements of mind and body arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing with no story. And when there is a story, when the mindfulness is strong, to be aware that that itself is just another thought form coming and going. So we're not dwelling in that realm. That's one level of reality. Part of that is also understanding the nature of awareness itself. The reason that you know we've talked a lot about hearing is because when we hear something like this, it seems so clear that awareness is a very spontaneous phenomenon. Are you doing anything to hear? Are you doing anything to be aware of the sound? You know, you're not. You don't do that. You don't have to do that. It's like the awareness is spontaneously present. And it's always spontaneously present. 
when you move, when you're walking? Is there something you're doing to create the awareness? To create the knowing? No. So really to appreciate that spontaneous arising of awareness. The problem is, of course, that we get distracted. We get pulled into phenomena. We, we get pulled into the story. And so we forget. And that's when we lose our sense of ease. Your mind must be an aberration. (laughs) No, it was just a little joke. Uh, I think the way you're positing it is is, uh, perhaps the source of the confusion. It's not a question of... Both of those situations are the true nature of mind. When the defilements are present, when the the galaces are present, so then the true nature of that, the nature of those galaces, are to create fragmentation and all the things you described. To say that the true nature of mind is luminous or clear is to recognize the fact that even though the galaces may obscure that fact, that the kalesas are what are called adventitious, which means that they are not inherent to the mind itself, but they arise, as they, they come as visitors, or they arise out of specific conditions. For as long as they keep coming, and they, they're frequent visitors, then we will experience the, the quality of our minds as being all of those things you mentioned. So it's just understanding one is the nature of the mind conditioned by Kalesa and one is the nature of the mind free of Kalesa. There are many, many levels of it. For example, when maybe you have uh, a few moments when the mind becomes calm. It's just simple, you know, you, you get a few breaths in a row and the mind feels a little calm. That experience of calm you could call an insight, a direct insight into the nature of calm. Because it's not, it's not something you're thinking about, it's something you've experienced, it's something you know. When you become aware that thoughts 
either both come and go or are liberated in the moment of mindfulness, that's an insight. Because you've seen it. It's not, it's not because anybody said it. You've noticed it in your own experience. The whole spectrum of awareness of the three characteristics. You know, all of the different ways we, we realize impermanence or dukkha or anatta, selflessness. All of those are insights. And there's a spectrum. You know, from kind of little baby insights <laughs> to full awakening. That is an interesting question. No, it really is. And, and it's, been, it's been discussed, I think, for a long time. How much does any practice condition what is seen? I think you could just approach it from two sides. And this, I don't think this is a definitive response to your question, but it's maybe a beginning. Um, one is, rather than consider that question from the philosophical point of view, which is an interesting point of view, so but rather than approach it from that side, come back to the pragmatism of really what the Buddha taught in terms of suffering and the end of suffering. Because that's really when he was asked, what's the bottom line of your teaching? That's it. So then it's, it's simply to notice for yourself, okay, what way of understanding, what way of being, what kind of experience is suffering? What kind of experience is free from suffering? In that context, and it really is an invitation to look. It's not a question of believing anything. Can we see for ourselves that when the mind is lost, is caught up, is identified with something, can we see for ourselves that that is a constriction, a contraction? And that the release of that, that experience when we are aware of the impermanent nature of everything, is that suffering or is that a state of greater freedom? So I think it's always important to come back to a very pragmatic level in terms of understanding what we're doing, even as we might consider the philosophic question, which I mean, they, they interest my mind a lot. And they don't necessarily interest everybody's mind. The other way, the other perspective 
I'm not exactly sure how this fits in, but having to do with, and as you say, the observer influences what is observed. So what happens when there's the observer disappears? Which, it, which happens in the meditation. You know, all sense of someone observing falls away. So then the question is, are we left actually then with things just as they are? Or not? And right. That's, but exactly. Exactly. That's why to, to bring it back to, okay, suffering and the end of suffering. <laughs> The few times that's been tried. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't worked so well. <laughs> but I think actually this this may actually be one of the great uh, gifts or strengths of the Dharma coming to the West. Because I think our Western mind is very interested in this kind of thing, you know, and and really open to many to many points of views and many perspectives. And so my hope, and you know, as we all grow in the Dharma, that we stay free of sectarian view based on the particular practice we've done, and sort of in the melting pot of our culture, really come, you know, to a real a real communication. And I think that would be tremendously enriching for the Dharma. Uh, but we're just at the beginning. And really, the, we need to do our practice in order to be able to have that discussion. So I invite you all. <laughs> you know, let's all get enlightened, and then we can talk about it. <laughs> okay, last question. Well, say again, I missed the first part. No. And that's, that's one of the interesting questions. You know, in different schools of Buddhism or traditions of Buddhism, it's described differently. So then the question is, are people using this different words to describe the same experience, or are they different experiences? That might be true also. So that's why it really, it continually comes back to us doing our practice. You know, that we're not going to get it from outside. We need to see for ourselves and to continue deepening our understanding. Uh, and going back to one of the early questions, that to me is what is so inspiring. You know, the Dharma is so rich. It's not a question of a couple of insights over a weekend. You know, it is vast and it's rich and, and tremendously profound. 
And so we just keep opening to that and opening and opening. You know, and it's, it's beautiful. There are two that don't seem related on the surface, but my mind made a connection. It says, please, just one more time, briefly explain why I am not my body, my emotions, my mind. Regarding my mind, where does the observer witness belong if it is watching the mind? Is it that it is the mind watching itself? The other question is, is it true that the final aim in Buddhism is to bring all movement, that is all existence, to stop, to end? How do you feel about that? <laughs> to answer the second question first, as I read that, I remembered a, just a line from a Zen story out of Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. It was a very, to me, beautiful image of, um, you could say, the aim of practice, the end of practice. Talked about uh, a snowflake dissolving into the pure air. And so when we perhaps think of it in that way or use that metaphor, it really takes it out of the realm of existence and non-existence. As the snowflake, the snowflake as an individual conditioned event ceases to exist, but it dissolves into the pure air, into into. <laughs> Because people have a lot of different ideas about that into. But relating that then to the first question, you know, what is it about our snowflake existence that we hold on to, that we're attached to? What keeps us sort of individuated as, as a snowflake? as this conditioned event. We get attached to the body. On so many different levels, we get attached to the concept of a body. You know, we look in the mirror, it looks familiar. Well, it, I mean, this is what happens. And we think, yeah, that's who I am. That's me. You know, if somebody cut your leg off, would you be less? No, there'd be no less you. I mean, it's so clear that we're not the body. And then when we look further and really begin to see what our experience of the body is with greater and greater refinement, we see that body itself is a concept and that really what we're experiencing is an energy field of sensation. And each moment of manifestation is just arising and dissolving. There's nothing lasting long enough to call I, to call self. And yet, when we don't see that, 
It's like the mind does grasp, it does solidify, it contracts. We do the same thing with emotions, we do the same thing with thoughts, we do the same thing with sights or sounds. And so you could think of the whole practice as learning moment to moment how to dissolve into the pure air and to see all those times, all those moments, when we're not dissolving into the pure air, where we're solidifying, contracting, identifying with another momentary transient experience. And it's in this respect that the question of freedom on the one hand and bondage or tightening or contraction on the other is really a moment-to-moment event. And that's what, for me, makes the practice so uh, incisive. It's not that you're doing this and then 25 years down the road, maybe something will happen. We could practice like that, but that's burdensome. It's much more uh, alive when we see, okay, moment after moment, are we dissolving into the pure air or are we tightening around something? And to the last part of this question, perhaps the most subtle thing that we identify with is awareness itself. Even as we see the momentariness of sensations and thoughts and emotions and feelings and sights and sounds, See that there's nothing substantial there and begin to decondition this strong attachment. The most subtle level of that is letting go of any identification with the awareness itself. Letting it simply function without any overlay of self or I on top of it. The question was, how does the notion of personality relate to the idea of self or individual? Personality is like... I'm going on some thin ice here. But but personality is like the individual... the, the shapes of the individual snowflakes. You know, due to certain conditions. Now, I've never really done a study of snowflakes, so. (laughs) But due to different conditions, it's like each one, you know, has a different shape, a slightly different form, a different texture. But it's all equally, each one is equally just a coming together of conditions. There's no, there's no inherent, unchanging core entity to it. And so in the same way, just there are a lot of conditions coming together based on past actions which create a certain shape of our bodies, of our minds. And that's our personality, our snowflake shape. But it's all very uh, changeable and insubstantial. And so the more we see that, we get less and less uh, imprisoned 
in our personalities. There's, there's more space for just to be, be how it is, and there's more lightness. And we're less self-judging, less judging of others. Would you say a few words about bowing? Some, teacher, some teachers bow, some don't. What do you do, and why? Sometimes I bow, sometimes I don't bow. <laughs> but generally, especially in coming into the hall, you know, when I come in and just pranam it's to the Buddha, there's something very uh, powerful that happens, even just in those few seconds. And I think it has significance uh, for the way we practice. And that is, we're really bowing or paying respects to something greater than ourselves, to greater wisdom, to greater compassion, to greater understanding. And it's that moment of acknowledging. It's a moment of devotion, which acknowledges that there is something greater than our present level of compassion or wisdom or insight or openness. And in that moment of devotion, in that moment of respect, in that moment of acknowledgement, there really is a heart opening. And that, that is the characteristic of devotion. It's like we, we open out of our limited, we open out of our limitations, even if it's just for a moment. And that's very, uh, it's very powerful to do that. And it connects us, connects us with something bigger. There's an aspect of faith or devotion that's not immediately obvious, but it's talked about in the Abhidhamma, that the characteristic of faith is clarity. And I think we don't normally make that association. But really the function of faith is to settle doubts. Like all the turmoil of the doubting mind is settled when there's faith and confidence in the mind. And as the doubts and turmoil settle, then the natural clarity of mind is there. So all that can happen in just a few moments of paying respects or bowing. What I do um, for myself is I actually imagine that you know, I'm bowing or pranaming to the Buddha, as if the Buddha is actually sitting there. It's very nice. <laughs> you know, it's really to be in the presence of the Buddha. Um, I also feel similarly. Depends how it's done. You know, it could be done as a rite and ritual, or it could be done really as a practice. You know, if, if you bow with the idea, well, I'm going to bow down and Maybe if I do enough bows or some number of bows, I'll get enlightened or I'll go to heaven or <laughs> whatever. That's doing it as a rite and a ritual, thinking that somehow the outward form is accomplishing something. It's not the outward form. It's the space. It's the heart-mind space in which one is doing it. And that's the transformative process. And that's the difference between 
between a simple rite and ritual and where it's just the form and maybe the very same thing done as a practice. What's the best way to work with strong lust, both here and in the world? It's a big question because it's a very powerful force in the mind. And of course, it's not only about strong lust, it's about the whole range of desire. How do we work with that movement of the mind you know, and, and again, here it's just so interesting to watch, to watch what our minds do. That leaning toward, leaning for, leaning into, wanting. You know, in the practice, we can just see the tendency of the mind to do that over and over again. Of course, in some way, strong lust gives us a very dramatic um, opportunity to look at this movement, which we then can see on more and more subtle levels. There are a couple of ways that have been helpful uh, in my practice. One is um, really seeing what it is, or seeing quite precisely what it is that is conditioning the desire or the lust arising. To see very carefully, is it a thought which comes into the mind and then triggers this feeling? Is it an image which comes into the mind? Is it certain sensations which arise in the body? Do the sensations condition the thoughts or images? Do the images condition the sensations? So you're really investigating the conditioned nature of the lust or the desire arising. It's not just there. It's there due to certain causes and conditions. When the mind gets precise in its noticing, and we can begin to pick up, just as an example, suppose there's some fantasy going on in the mind with, with images, you know, sexual images or food images, whatever your lust happens to be for. <laughs> Just as soon as that image arises, to note the contact, first to note that there's the image and to note that moment of contact and feeling, that there's a certain contact with the seeing, with the image, and a pleasant feeling. And right there, just to make that note and to see if mindfulness at that point actually weakens or if the mindfulness is quite strong, actually breaks the whole subsequent chain. So that's one way, getting very precise in the sequence of conditioning. Another way is a reflection, and this has also helped me a lot, having you know, gone down lust drive <laughs> you know, endless number of times. At some point, we wake up to the fact that it doesn't go anyplace. It's a dead end. (laughs) Especially here. (laughs) I hope. (laughs) 
So how many times do we have to go down that road? And we do. We go down a lot. But if you reflect, just as, just as the whole train is starting again, you know, that whole movement, just to remind oneself, I've done this endless number of times. It's not going anyplace. You know, I'll spend this little holiday down here and then I'll be back and still have to <laughs> proceed. That reflection really helped me a lot because at a certain point I started catching, catching the movement a lot quicker and I realized, I don't have to do that again. But it takes sort of, basically what it's doing is through the reflection, strengthening or calling up the wisdom mind. You know, it's just seeing with wisdom what it is that's about to happen. And if there's enough awareness in that moment, we have the freedom to make a choice. Do I want to go down this road again or not? Do I just stay right with my practice? There's another aspect which I found helpful. There's a lot. There's a lot to learn about desire. You know, it's, it's the driving force of samsara. It is the force which keeps us bound. So it's well worth understanding and investigating. And it's not a question of just seeing it once. You know, we really have to look again and again. This also is a very powerful insight. And that is to watch desire in the mind. And especially when it's very strong, not, not just kind of a passing desire. But when it's very strong, there's often the feeling that goes along with it that somehow to bring this to resolution or to, to resolve the desire, we need to fulfill it. That that's the only way that the desire will come to completion is through fulfillment. And that is the voice of Mara. That's the basic delusion. It is the desire which is desiring. It's not that there is someone who is having a desire. And that someone needs to fulfill the desire in order to be complete. The desire itself is what is desiring. And the beauty of seeing this is that when the desire disappears in the natural course of events, because everything is impermanent, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, and at a certain point, it's not there. When that desire has ceased, it is totally gone at that moment. It's not that there is someone behind it who needs to have been fulfilled. Because it was the desire which is desiring. And in the moment it's gone, the mind is, it's like the mind is released from the grip of it. Does that make sense to you? <laughs> because it, when I saw that, that the desires would pass by themselves, 
and that I didn't have to do anything about them. That was a huge burden lifted. You know, and it's not that one always actualizes that understanding, but it really frees the mind a lot from obsessing. So this is all, these are all different approaches and you may well discover more, you know, in your own investigation. Something I've mentioned before and just to remind you and to encourage you. Take interest when there's desire in the mind. Not, it's not a question. It's totally useless to start judging it. It's really to understand it. So watch. Watch the feeling. Watch the contraction. Watch the sense of I right, that comes when we're lost or identified with it. And then notice the moment when the desire is no longer there. See if you can catch that transition. So you see for yourself the difference between the mind in the grip of desire and the mind released from it. Just seeing that will be a powerful deconditioning force because you'll see how much freer it is. Did I mention in the group my billboard metaphor? I was working with desire, actually, and I was sitting in my practice. I was doing, I was on retreat, and everything was going along reasonably smoothly. And it felt like just going down a highway. And as I went down the highway, I would see these billboards on the side of the road. You know, lust. <laughs> Take this exit. <laughs> and, and I would watch my mind just take the exit and go to wherever it was, spend a little time, then have to come back the road, get back on the highway. But as this happened over and over again, I started seeing the billboard. You know, I'm just going along. There's this big ad. And my mind would still get off the exit, but I would see it get off and it would get right back on. I wouldn't even have to go down to the amusement park. (laughs) And then with, just by watching, and, and somehow this metaphor helped me a lot, then I'd be going along, I'd see the billboard, and having done the other two already quite a few times, I'd say, I don't even have to get off the exit. That billboard can be there. And I can notice it. I can simply notice the billboard and stay right on the highway. So the whole relationship to, to the allure of the desire changes. And we see that our mind can see all these pleasant things or alluring fantasies and really not be tempted into the diversion. We just see it. Oh, yeah, look at that. Okay. How to deal with mid-retreat blues? (laughs) No, not even as involving as blues. (laughs) Doldrums, lack of interest, lack of energy, blankness, drifting, feeling that it's over. (laughs) In to some feelings or other, some...
again, just to watch the mind build a reality four more weeks it's too long things are flat they're not going to improve oh, this is a drag feel so sorry for myself I mean, all of that is made up it's totally made up why make up that one? what's needed you can use those feelings if there's a kind of flat feeling if there's a kind of boredom or doldrum feeling watch to see what stories are being created around it come back just to the experience of the feeling and let those feelings be a feedback or a signal right in the moment, not, not as a general uh, evaluation of your character. It's just in the moment what that feeling is saying, what, what those feelings are saying, that the attention is somewhat half-hearted. That's, that's the space out of which those feelings come. The mind gets bored, it gets disinterested, it gets flat, when our attention is not close to the arising experience. And it's just in the moment. It has nothing to do with time of retreat or how long it is or how long it's to go. Just in the moment, how close, how attentive. Whether it's in the walking or the breathing or whatever. You know, I've suggested a few times, and again, it's something that has worked well for me, when you see that the mind is withdrawn from a close contact with experience, and you're just kind of you know, going along, and there is this half-hearted attention, take some short periods of time, very short. You know, if you're doing the walking meditation, make a resolve for five steps. Let me feel it microscopically. Or you're sitting for the next ten breaths, Let me get very close. Watch the difference. Watch what happens in the mind as you do that. And you can do that in those very short intervals repeatedly. And that's what brings energy. It brings interest. Okay. Another angle on this. And again, this... I mentioned this earlier on. You know, this one teacher who talked about the price of gold going up and down, but the nature of gold stays the same. You feel enthusiastic, happy, you're having wonderful experiences, rapture, bliss, body of light, you're levitating up to the ceiling. That's the price of gold going up. You feel down, you feel depressed, you feel lonely, you feel bored, you feel blue, you feel flat. That's the price of gold going down. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. It's just more experience. The nature of awareness does not change. The nature of awareness, whether the experience is very exciting or the experience is very dull, 
The nature of awareness is exactly the same in all of these situations. Why be deceived by appearances? Why think, this is me? You know, the flatness, the dullness. That's again solidifying into snowflakeness. Let it all dissolve into the pure air. Let it dissolve into awareness. And to see that you can be as closely aware, as finely aware, as a state of the price of gold being down as well as it being up. You can be as aware of flat, of gray, of dull. Take interest in that state. Let the mind get very attentive to that state. Because it's all just a passing shower. Uh, I wonder, do you ever make you suppose you're cold? I think you wouldn't want to particularly uh, go down the road of lust to get out of <laughs> depression. <laughs> because that's just substituting. <laughs> yeah, well, there is. I see reflection can be skillful. Um, I don't know whether you remember, you know, early in the retreat, we talked about the four reflections which turn the mind towards the Dharma. That can be very helpful, you know, to, to raise energy, to arouse energy. With all of the states, you know, and again, the, one of the powers of a long retreat like this, although you forget it as you're kind of going through it all, you just go through these cycles so many times. You know, you feel up, you feel down, you feel happy, you feel depressed. And to the degree that you can hold all of that in the wisdom mind, that is, noticing whatever it is, knowing that it's part of a changing, insubstantial flow, understanding its selflessness, over time, when you go through those cycles again and again and again, slowly the mind gets less and less affected by them. Say, oh, there's this, there's this, there's this. You know, and that's, that's really the freedom and the equilibrium, the equanimity that begins to carry over a lot into lives outside. From doing the very work that you're doing here and watching all the cycles, the mind gets much less upset in the outside world as different changing conditions appear. In dealing with intense mind states such as fear, I find that staying with it consumes my energy and all I see and feel is the fear. Is it better to go to the edges a little at a time and back off in order to be more balanced and conserve energy? People, teachers included, keep telling me I need to lighten up. So I suspect my typical way of dealing with intense states is staying uh, staying in there. Could use some suggestions. I think it all depends on how one is being with the intense state. Generally, it's not so helpful to stay with a strong emotion. 
whether it's fear or anger or whatever, if it's very strong, I think it's better to be there for some time and then give the mind a break, come back to the breath, come back to sensations in the body. Otherwise, it's easy for the mind to get really tied up in it. So the backing off is helpful. When the emotion is strong, keep in mind that there Just again to remind you, there's the situation which is calling up the emotion. Maybe you think of somebody, you know, in strong fear or strong anger. There's the emotion which is called up. And then there's how you're relating to the emotion. Is it with judgment? Is it with acceptance? Is it with identification? As I've said, normally we're in one and two. There's a situation, it calls up an emotion, we think about the situation, it makes us emote more. <laughs> Back, we start thinking about the situation, and we're just, we're just trapped in the loop. What we have to do is to move from one to two, to two to three. Where there's the emotion, we're aware of it, and then we change our perspective with the question, how am I relating to this? How am I getting hooked? How am I getting identified? And we're asking the question not for an answer. We're asking it simply as a way of changing the perspective, to change our stance. So that instead of looking out from the emotion back to the situation, which just keeps us tied up, the situation at this point does not matter. It's irrelevant. It's all about changing our perspective so we're noticing how we're relating to it. Again, that really shows us the degree to which we're caught or released. And we can be relating to emotions in a wide range of ways. And this is something we need to see. Are we tightening around it? Are we identifying with it? Are we judging it? Judging ourselves? Is there acceptance? Is it okay? Can we feel it? Can we open to it? All of those questions about how we're relating have nothing to do with the situation. So that's a very helpful shift. There are a few compassion questions. Uh, With the compassion meditation, I find a lot of people surfacing for whom I have ambivalent feelings, that is both anger and misgivings, both distrust and longing for connection. This ambivalent category is quite large for me in my life, and the meditation is very difficult but also deep. Question, should I create a whole new category, (laughs) not neutral, and add on to the meditation? Can you say more about these more ambivalent feelings, which seem so ordinary to me? And also, can you explain the difference between metta and compassion? And wouldn't it be better to practice one or the other of them rather than a little of both? I think ambivalent feelings about people are quite common. 
It's not, this is not a strange thing. Uh, you know, when, I was, when I was doing a lot of metta practice, even when I was doing benefactor, you know, who had done a lot of good things for me, I would watch my mind thinking also of the things that I didn't like so much. So I think everybody, you know, we're, we're all a package of qualities, and there are very few people who are 100% wonderful. <laughs> so given that, you know, and given the fact that there will be ambivalent feelings, when we're doing the metta, the idea or the support for the metta is to focus on those qualities which are endearing. You know, which are beautiful. It's not that we're not aware of the others or that we don't see the others, but it's really a question of what we're focusing on. Because if we focus on what is beautiful in a person, then it's much easier to generate the feeling of loving kindness. Um, and it's fine to create a whole other category. And if there are people that are really equally... <laughs> wonderful and miserable. Create a category of those, but then focus on the wonderful qualities. That's the point of the metta practice. And even when you're doing with, with an enemy or a difficult person, you want to focus on the qualities you know, that are beautiful in them. If, sometimes it's a challenge to find them, <laughs> but they're there in everybody. The difference between metta and compassion is simply that compassion focuses on the suffering in beings. Whereas metta is the general feeling of goodwill towards all beings, compassion is that feeling related to the suffering of beings. And so it's a, it's a different state. Um, I think it's fine, since this is not primarily for most of you, a retreat in the Brahma Viharas, to do a little of each of them seems fine. You know, at some point, you could do an intensive practice focusing on one or another or several in sequence. Most of the teachers have done very rigorous practice in Asia. IMS, in contrast to Burma, is comfortable with great food, etc. Also, the practice is pretty liberal. No one takes attendance or enforces stillness in sitting like in Zen centers. So, the question is, has anyone gotten enlightened here? At <laughs> Upandita retreats, other. Or are we building up our strength so that we can then go somewhere else and really suffer? <laughs> Hoping for a relatively comfortable path. <laughs> the conditions are pretty good here. What the question uh, prompted in me, and again, I think this is particularly appropriate at this time in the retreat, A lot of good practice has gone on here. It's not necessary 
you know, to go to Asia or to be off in a cave someplace. However, it is necessary to be at the forward edge of effort. And this doesn't mean efforting. So you have to be very clear in your understanding. It's not a question of tensing and striving and efforting, leaning forward, but it is a question of arousing more and more energy to be aware in the practice. We talked about before the, the different ways of strengthening the spiritual faculties. Watch the tendency to settle into a groove because it's very easy in a long retreat. You know, you get into a comfortable pattern where you're, you're working hard, but you're not really pushing the edges at all. It's just everything is everything's kind of going along. See what happens. Play the edge of your practice. It might mean being more, more meticulous, more caring in how you move. You know, so that when you leave the hall, it's not just leaving to get your shoes to do the next thing, but you're as careful in leaving the hall as you would be in walking meditation. Or showering, or yogi job, or whatever it is. That's an edge to play. And just see what happens if you push that edge a bit. You can do it with sleep. And it doesn't have to be any dramatic. You know, it's not that you have to cut the amount of sleep in half. But something that I found very helpful to do is, at certain points in a long retreat, to start cutting back a little. I would cut back 15 minutes, 20 minutes. See what that was like. Often I'd find it didn't make any difference in my energy. I could well renounce that 15 minutes. You know, and so there was that 15 more minutes of practice. And then maybe a week later, cut back another 15 minutes or 20 minutes. So it's all to play with it. It's not to, it's not to stay in a pattern. It's true that in this form, and I think it's one of the things that draws us all together, it's really, uh, there's a great emphasis or, or, on individual practice. Nobody's standing over you. Nobody's keeping count. (laughs) When I first taught out of Naropa Institute in 1974 in in that community, at least at that time, uh, the the people in the community punched time clocks for their sitting. (laughs) And they were expected to sit a certain amount of time. Well, maybe we should do that. <laughs> and as you come into the hall, you're <laughs> but somehow it's not our style. <laughs> you know, it's really all up to us individually to sort of arouse the energy and the effort. So just see, this is a good time in the retreat to sort of take stock and see, okay, what are the ways you know, where the attention, the awareness can become more refined, more caring, That's what it takes. I mean, that's what really builds uh, and deepens the practice a lot. It's that line, the forward edge of effort without forcing, without straining.
That's the line to play. Okay, there are a lot that we didn't get to. Uh, Just one announcement, which uh, we've been getting several notes about this, so it's to remind you and to ask your help in it. There are some people who are extremely uh, chemically sensitive, uh, particularly to scents. So if you could really see whether you're using any kind of perfume or lotions that are scented, and if you are perhaps not using them, and if you need a replacement to ask the office for it. Uh, Some people have very strong allergic type reactions to it. So it would be good to honor that. Keep going. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.